This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Makers of outdoor clothing, gear, and rafts are wading into the debate over public lands and whether they should be managed by states or the federal government. The Outdoor Industry Association plans to move a trade show away from Utah after 20 years because of steps politicians have taken in that state. I'll speak with the head of the association shortly. First, CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains that Colorado is preparing to roll out the red carpet to lure this coveted trade show. Winter is the time for boat repairs at Cocopelli Packrafts in Denver. So that was just a pretty quick and easy fix there. Co-founder Kelly Smith fixes a nylon strap for a nearby yellow raft. He started the company out of his garage five years ago. As a small company, one of the biggest decisions in Cocopelli's five-year history came this year. The company decided to boycott one of the largest trade shows this summer in Salt Lake City. Really, it's kind of the state of Utah has had this promotion to take public lands private. The catalyst for Smith and more than a dozen others was a recent resolution approved by Utah's Republican-controlled legislature. It asked President Trump to rescind the recent National Monument designation of Bears Ears in southeastern Utah. Supporters say it's too restrictive for future ranching, logging, and other economic development. Utah Governor Gary Herbert signed the bill. Here he is at a press conference last week. My job is to reflect the desires and the will of the people of Utah. Utah lawmakers and Herbert took another step recently to put more federal land in Utah's hands. They passed legislation that seeks to shrink boundaries of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. That's how we develop policy, and uh, we'll continue to do that in reflecting uh, what the people of Utah want to have done. But that push to give Utah control over federal lands has led to a major repercussion. The twice-yearly trade shows, sponsored by Boulder-based Outdoor Industry Association, will move to another state in 2018. That means the 40,000 visitors and $45 million that come into Salt Lake City for the shows every year will soon be gone. It's disheartening. Rose Marcario is CEO of Patagonia. The company was one of the first to boycott the trade show. This isn't the first time that Utah state leadership has fought with the outdoor industry over public lands. In 2012, there was a dust-up over a bill signed by the governor that requested 30 million acres of federal land be returned to the state. With a Republican president and Congress, Marcario considers the threat of rescinding Bears Ears National Monument status very real. And the effect that that could have on national monuments around the country is incredibly concerning, and it really, as an industry, is our line in the sand. This week, Patagonia launched a phone campaign to flood Herbert's office with calls in favor of keeping Bears Ears a national monument. It's a critical moment in the eyes of University of Utah political science professor Dan McCool. He says it shows how the public lands debate can sometimes become irrational. On the one hand, Utah's tourism office has an ad campaign to bring visitors, including from Colorado, to the state's five national parks. With the other hand, they're combating national monuments, which also draw a huge number of people. So it's not a rational thing anymore. It It really isn't. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper hopes the state's more friendly attitude toward public lands will lure the outdoor industry trade show here. The state will have to compete with others, including New Mexico, that are pulling out all the stops. 
Richard Scharf with Visit Denver says the trade show is highly coveted because of its millions in tourism dollars. And there could be other benefits. If you have a convention like this, there may be a lot of companies that want to move here and start doing business, making their products here. Colorado could benefit from a politically unfavorable stance in Utah. But Scharf says a long time ago, it was his state in the limelight. In the 90s, conventions and visitors boycotted Colorado because of a voter-approved constitutional amendment that allowed discrimination against gays and lesbians. We were involved in it, um, you know, firsthand. And uh, it wasn't until the Supreme Court overthrew that uh, initiative that uh, we got back to normal. But by then, we had lost hundreds of millions of dollars of business. Scharf says today's volatile political climate means marketing organizations like Visit Denver are more politically attuned than they've ever been. Visit Denver now gives feedback on potential impacts of bills to Colorado legislators. The political moves came from a hard lesson learned more than two decades ago, one that's now arrived on Utah's doorstep. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Now let's hear from the organizer of this big twice-yearly trade show called Outdoor Retailer. Amy Roberts is executive director of the Outdoor Industry Association. She joins us from Boulder, where the OIA is based. And welcome to the program, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Big burning question. Can you say today if Colorado will be your selection to host the event? Well, I, as you mentioned in the story, um, Colorado is definitely one of the states that has expressed interest. Um, we've heard interest from Governor Bullock in Montana, Senator Heinrich in New Mexico has talked about the convention. Um, so I think we're going to have a lot of interest in, in locating the convention in a Western state. Okay. So you have a lot of people courting you, but you can't say if it's going to be Colorado that's chosen. We'll talk more about the process of selecting a new location in a bit. But let's step back. What was behind your decision to move the trade show out of Utah? Was it the boycott by businesses who just weren't going to attend the trade show? Or was it an opposition in your own organization to how Utah politicians are handling public land issues? Well, I think it was both. And it's really an issue that's been building over a period of years. So the trade show has been in Salt Lake City for 20 years. I would say really over the last 10, we've had concerns with Utah political leadership and the decisions made around public lands in the state. And those really came to a head in the last couple of years when we began to see efforts both by the Utah legislature, the governor, as well as the congressional delegation to lead the nation in efforts that we feel would harm public lands. And that really means transferring federal lands to the states where it's likely they would be sold off to private interests. And then more recently, it came to a head really around the monuments. And so um, that's when we began to see companies that are members of ours say that this was not the right state any longer to have the trade show in. They weren't going to attend. And that um, that was something that we needed to listen to, we agreed with in terms of a policy stance. And so we, you know, we, we had a, some discussions with the governor over a period of time with the congressional delegation, including last minute efforts in Washington, D.C. And we just saw that in the end, we had a difference of opinion and that Utah was going to be somewhat isolated in their viewpoints. And it was time to move our show. And that's what we've done. The idea that you weren't going to be able to sway them, or at least you felt that. Uh, Patagonia was a major player in this. Um, They obviously bring, I'm I'm guessing, a lot of money and presence to the trade show. Is Patagonia, to some extent, dictating the decision for the rest of the retailers? 
or do you feel that others are in lockstep? No, I think the industry is in lockstep. Um, we actually recently, um, before this this whole dust up occurred in Utah most recently, we had an ad that ran in the Washington Post, and it was really a celebration of public lands, keeping public lands in public hands. And over a period of really two days, more than close to 200 of our companies ended up signing this letter that really celebrated public lands, the importance of public lands as a part of our national heritage in a very bipartisan way. And so our, our industry is very united around the concept that public lands are the infrastructure of our industry industry. They're important to the American people. And it's a bipartisan issue that really everyone can get behind. So I think our, our industry is very unified around this. Some of the companies um, were just more vocal than others initially. I mean, given that some companies were pulling out of the trade show, we, we have to acknowledge that there must have been some economic reasons for pulling out of Utah because the show might not continue to be viable. Would you say that's true? I think that is true. Um, you know, our our companies have constituents as well. And so those are employees and consumers that expect them to live up to their values. And I think it's very easy for our companies to do that because our companies do have a core set of values around public lands and the environment. And for the trade association, you know, our constituents are our members. So we heard loud and clear that they felt like we weren't making progress in Utah. We weren't able to have the impact there that we wanted in terms of really getting Utah elected officials to embrace the outdoor recreation economy, which was very disappointing because I think these uh, other Western states that have now stepped up and said they want the show are actually choosing a different path. And so um, what we heard is that it's time to move the show to a different state that is more aligned with our values and to bring both the show but also the halo impact that that carries in terms of a stamp of approval from the outdoor industry. I know that some of this has to do with bears' ears, but also more generally with the question of state or federal uh, control of public lands. Is it unfair to cast those who would like more state control as somehow anti-environment or anti-outdoors? Isn't it possible that they just think a different type of management can support the same values? Yeah, I think the challenge is that our federal land system was set up to be something that all Americans own and that we have the opportunity as Americans to travel to different states and to visit these lands. And while I think management is always a collaborative discussion, it's really best done at the legislative process or in the local communities. And what we were seeing is just there wasn't that open dialogue around the opportunities there. It was really a pretty hardline position around just basically transferring federal lands to the states, which we don't think is a viable option. So that was really that was really the the nut of the discussion, and that's where we just weren't able to reach agreement and align on values in that area. So your press release from the Outdoor Industry Association states that outdoor retailer, this twice yearly trade show, has generated more than $45 million annually for Utah's economy, supported 122,000 jobs in the state. Are you concerned about the people in Utah who depend on the event taking place twice each year and who presumably share the values you've talked to us about? 
Yeah. I mean, one reason our industry has stayed in Salt Lake City for so long in Utah is because by nature, our industry is very collaborative. Getting outdoors is about having fun. And so we always want to um, have the patience to work with a state to see if we can find ways to change the policies there. And I think there's a definitely a melancholy or a bittersweet feeling in our industry, um, especially because the hotels and restaurants in Salt Lake have been so good to us. We have friends that we've developed from attending the show there over so many years. And what we've said is, you know, our message is we're going to continue to work on public land policy in the state of Utah, even if our trade show is not there. But I really think what we're going to see now is that the business community in Salt Lake will organize around this issue and perhaps um, send a message that it's time for a leadership change in Utah. All right. Well, Colorado hopes that Utah's loss is its gain. You said you're not prepared to to name Colorado as the chosen spot for future trade shows. Um, What kind of offers, um, what kind of pot sweeteners are you getting from other states? How do they compare to what Colorado is offering, if anything? Well, so OIA will be a part of the process, but our partner, of course, is Outdoor Retailer, which is a company that runs the trade show. And they'll do an RFP process to states that show that they have the um, infrastructure to support the show. So first and foremost, you know, the the convention center needs to be large enough to host the show. The company, the community infrastructure in terms of hotels, transportation uh, needs to be able to support the show. And then, of course, uh, our industry will be looking for a state that we feel like has embraced the outdoor recreation economy. And so all those factors will come into play. And that RFP process should be kicking off here in really the next week. Okay, RFP, which stands for Request for Proposals. I'll say that Colorado Convention Center in downtown Denver is growing to accommodate bigger shows uh, on that particular item. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper has not so subtly indicated that he'd like the outdoor retailer show to move here. And I noticed that when I went to your website, he's on the homepage. He's standing between a fisherman and a rock climber. And the website points to Hickenlooper as an example of someone who has partnered to, quote, write and influence recreation and trade policy that's good for business and good for Colorado. Might, might that indicate a leg up? Well, um, Governor Hickenlooper has been part of our new brand campaign, which is called Together We're a Force. And it really is about the unity of the industry and coming together to support great public lands policy. And we highlighted Governor Hickenlooper along with Dave Lineweber, who um, is the fly fisherman that owns a great shop in Colorado Springs. As, as you know, two people that have come together in their communities, Dave in Colorado Springs, the governor as a leader of our state in Colorado, to push policies that support things like Browns Canyon. Obviously, the governor has put quite a bit of money into bicycle infrastructure in the state, and he has a trails project really from DIA to uh, really the western slope. And so he's been an advocate for pub- public lands, and that's definitely something we're going to be looking at as we decide where to cite the show. That is Amy Roberts, executive director of the Outdoor Industry Association based in Boulder. You can read the reporting from CPR's Grace Hood on that trade show they put on at CPRnews.org.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With 14 Oscar nominations, there has been a lot of buzz about La La Land leading up to the Academy Awards this weekend. City of stars, are you shining just for me? City of stars, there's so much that I can't. I felt it from the first embrace I shared with you That now our dreams may finally come true It stars Ryan Gosling as a struggling jazz musician, Emma Stone as an aspiring actress. The two had to brush up on their singing and their dancing. And for the latter, they got help from choreographer Mandy Moore. Moore lives in Los Angeles, but she grew up in Breckenridge. And she has stepped out, I believe, from a Dancing with the Stars rehearsal to speak with us. Mandy, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Indeed. La La Land has the feel, really, of the old musicals from the 30s and 40s. How did you envision the choreography for it? Like, I don't know, did you have images of Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire or Ginger Rogers in your head? Yeah, 100%. You know, the nice thing, as soon, well, as soon as I was brought on, you know, Damien, our director, Damien Chazelle, just had a, an incredible, incredibly clear vision for the film. So, you know, early on, he and I would watch Fred and Ginger films, and we'd watch Gene Kelly, we'd watch uh, Donald O'Connor, you know, we would watch all these old films, and basically, I guess I would say break down the scenes. Uh-huh. We'd talk a lot about what you know, he was drawn to in the scene and what I was, what I felt from the scene. And then from that, I feel like I was really able to understand the tone and the aesthetic that he was wanting from the dance in the film. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously as a dancer, I'm very inspired by the greats, you know, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, 100%. Okay. And so were those films you had seen before then? Yeah. You know, my, when I was young, my mom, um, we used to go to the video store in in, Brecker, in Frisco, actually. And during the weekends, we would grab a bunch of VHSs. You know, we'd get like seven or eight for the weekend. And I was always drawn to the musicals. So, you know, as a kid growing up, I watched anything I could get my hands on, you know, and, and over and over and over again. So to, to do this research for La La Land and kind of go back to those same films was interesting to watch again as a as an adult you know because i think as a kid obviously you pick up on things differently than you do as an adult but it was fun to go back and look at them all and and there you go dating yourself with a technology called vhs I know. A, right, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird yeah it's like what it was the local vhs store you know like a blockbuster <laughs> so early on in the film la la land gosling and stone dance together on a hill overlooking los angeles and at this point in the film their characters act like they don't like each other much. Mm -hmm. Um, They sing about how the setting sun and scenery would be a really romantic setting for anyone else. And before (laughs) you know it, they are tap dancing together. Let's listen. Okay, how was it to teach them tap? Uh, 
Well, first of all, to have music that that, that is that descriptive and that fun to create to was, um, you know, a dream. Because and, and the nice thing, too, for when I was starting to create, we already had really beautifully orchestrated demos that mm. I was able to work with, which doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes you just get, you know, a piano kind of plunking out the melody or something. But um, when we went into rehearsal, Damien knew how important that music was going to be. Uh, to create two. So we spent the time to really orchestrate those demos and teaching those two to tap was you know, definitely a tall order, I will say, you know, because the scene's a very pivotal scene for them because they do, they go from, you know, not really liking each other, kind of biting at each other, a little sarcastic. And by the end of the dance, they have to actually look at each other and go, Hmm, maybe there is something there. Huh. Maybe I didn't read you right. You know? So, and we have to tell that all in, you know, three minutes or something like that. So, I wanted to try to create movement that felt fun and unique and slightly gesture-based at first, you know, so kind of moves that maybe an everyday person might do, and then slowly start to fall into trying to kind of one-up each other or test each other, uh, and then eventually falling into step together and, and being on the same rhythm. What I found really charming about the film, and I, I'm, I don't say this to cast aspersions, is my sense is that neither of the actors are particularly um, wonderful, highly skilled, accomplished singers or dancers, and yeah. th- that the, the realness is part of the charm. Do, do you think that's true? Oh, yes. And that was a very deliberate choice very early on. You know, I... When having those conversations with Damien, part of the aesthetic that he was wanting was this feeling of real people being able to move and to sing and and to fall into dance. So I think it wouldn't have worked as well, honestly, if they had been so clean in their movements or so precise that it looked um, almost porcelain, I guess, or that like you wouldn't be able to access it and understand it. I, I do think that there's a real beauty and a real charm to them because... They're not exactly perfect. They're not supposed to be dancers in the film. Neither one is. You know, they're a musician and an actress, and then they dance. So finding that vocabulary that was all driven from feeling and emotion was always first and foremost. You know, it was never about the shape or the cool move that they were doing. It was about trying to find what we needed to tell story-wise and, and, and let everything kind of, I guess, build from there or come, stem from that. Again, Damien is Damien Chazelle, who is the director yeah. that is nominated for an Oscar. Speaking <laughs> speaking of the Oscar, uh, Mandy, who grew up in Breckenridge, Colorado, and choreographed La La Land, are you bummed there's not an Oscar category for choreography in a film? Yeah, you know, it, it's when I a couple years ago, actually, when I was doing Silver Linings, um, Silver Linings Playbook with David O. Russell. Um, you know, the film was nominated for a bunch of things as well. And yeah. that was actually the first time I ever even thought that maybe there could be an Oscar for choreography. And I actually didn't realize there wasn't. I think I just assumed that, you know, it was something you didn't really hear about or maybe it was every other year. But come to find out that they don't have it at all. You know, of course, yeah, with a, a, a film like this and, that, you know, it being a musical and an original musical, it would be really cool if there were an Oscar. But you know, funny, I think I think it has sparked some conversation about it. So 
you know, who knows? Maybe in the future it will happen, or maybe this kind of a situation will spark something to uh, to push for it in some way. Okay, we have to talk about the opening scene of La La Land <laughs> uh, and the track Another Day of Sun. There's a traffic jam on a Los Angeles freeway, and in the style of the old musical, once again, uh, as we'll hear here, everyone breaks out in song and dance. And someday as I sing the song, a small town kid will come along. That'll be the thing to push him on and go. You had to choreograph, I understand, about 30 dancers, 100 extras, and all mixed in dozens of vehicles. Talk about the yeah. challenge of this. Well, you know, I when, my, when I first read the script, you know, it just basically, the, the description was that everyone gets out of their cars and they sing and dance, mm. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I first heard this song, I was like, oh, this is going to be really fun, you know, and then kind of the panic sets in of, you know, how do you do this? Because <laughs> it is, it's a massive, um, you know, undertaking. But, you know, with those kinds of numbers, I think the best thing to do is to just break it down to its basics. And the basics are you've got cars and you've got people. So you need to put people in cars and then you need to figure out what the camera's seeing. And, you know, that's where when working with Damien Chazelle, he, you know, with he would talk to me about what he felt like the camera movement might be or what the move is that you or what the camera would be seeing. And then once I understand what that is, it's a matter of then kind of puzzle piecing everything in, you know, figuring out that, okay, it starts with one girl. Once I know that, I'm good. You know, if he'd said it starts with 30 people getting out of cars, that would have been a very different, uh, you know, different kind of a scene. So once I know that it starts with one girl and then it has to sli- slowly build with people getting out of the cars and they're not really dancing yet. They're, you know, starting to kind of do movement that looks like maybe it's slightly nuanced. And then all of a sudden we get to another car and four people pop out, but they're doing a little bit more. And all of a sudden somebody gets on the car and flips off. I start to understand the progression of what Damien's looking for too. And that really informs how I create it. Um, you know, the biggest challenge honestly was, how to make 30 people look like hundreds of people, you know? And ah. uh, yeah, because I, I, if you were to look at it, you know, if you were to watch us kind of bird's eye view, some of those areas probably looked very empty because we only had 30 people. But the beauty of camera is that I get to isolate an area and make it seem like there's a lot more people there, if that makes any sense, you know? And then I can kind of creatively move people around to fill it in. And then obviously having the, the extras there to in some of those wider shots to fill in some of the spaces was really, really needed. Uh, but it was so much fun. Honestly, Ryan, like I had a blast creating that number and to, to shoot it too. I mean, I, I just so wish people could, you know, I hope people get to see some behind the scenes stuff of it. Cause I think people would find it really interesting, you know, how we got it all on camera. Lovely to speak with you, Mandy. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. That is La La Land choreographer Mandy Moore, who grew up in Breckenridge. When you think of memorable movie quotes... Casablanca, starring Humphrey Bogart, may top the list. 
Hilton, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. And from the same film, of course, there's Louis. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. There's even a famous line from Casablanca that isn't in Casablanca. Ahead of the Academy Awards Sunday, why don't we chat now with Denver author Josh Chetwind. His new book is Totally Scripted, Idioms, Words, and Quotes from Hollywood to Broadway that have changed the English language. And welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Let's begin with Bogart, who shows up throughout your book. What's the famous line from Casablanca that's often repeated but isn't exactly said? Yeah, that's the line, play it again, Sam, which everyone always uses but was not in the film. The line was actually slightly different. And you find with a lot of film quotes that actually they're not exactly as you remember them. For example, Field of Dreams has the famous quote, if you build it he will come. But everyone says, if you build it, they, they will come. come. Right. Oh, my gosh. I've been guilty of that many, many times. Uh, Bogart appears in other movies with some iconic lines as well, as you include in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he also was... What's interesting about Bogart is that he actually played a role in these lines. So here's looking at you, kid. The story goes that Ingrid Bergman was learning English at the time. She was Swedish. And she was playing poker as a way to sort of improve her language with her English coach. And Bogart, every once in a while, would come in and would look in on these games. And to help Ingrid Bergman's banter, he suggested to her to say, here's looking at you, as a way to sort of kind of go back and forth with the people he was playing with. And the line was not initially in the film, but it's believed that he took that from that conversation and inserted it in the film. And he had some role in The Treasure of Sierra Madre, which gave us... Badges. We don't need no stinking badges, which also is a misstated line. The line's slightly different in that film as well. Uh Um, Another famous quote that he was uh, involved with was the stuff that dreams are made of from the Maltese Falcon. Again, a quote that was not in the film, uh, but or excuse me, in the book. Dashiell Hammond written a book and wasn't in the original screenplay. And he was the one who inserted that in as well. Bogart becomes um, like a word unto itself, not just a proper name. Yeah, I mean, he was such an iconic actor, and that word was used uh, in the film Easy Rider for people who are from the baby boomer generation will know that uh, Fraternity of Man had a song that uh, used that word to talk about sort of guarding something jealously. It was used in the counterculture revolution uh, to do with with smoking marijuana. Right, don't Bogart my joint. Exactly. And uh, what was interesting about that word is that Bogart was so popular that it actually had two meanings. Before that meaning, it was also used to, when you were talking about bullying someone, you were bogarting them. And Mm. and that was a term that was used often in the 60s and 70s. And you can still see it in writing up until the 1990s, but no longer really used. There are so many words and expressions we use daily that come from showbiz. The limelight is from an old lighting technology that required adding gases to lime. An actor gets a cue, and that comes from the letter Q, which was short for quando, when in Latin, that was used in playbooks for actors. Uh, Tell us, though, about the origin of hamming it up you know, as an actor might do on stage. Yeah, what's interesting about hamming it up is it has to do with the makeup and how it was applied in early theater. And in order to apply the makeup so it wouldn't fall off, 
people had to use actually ham fat. So it was a ham fatter. And yeah, really gross. But there were a lot of efforts to improve that that capacity. And people started using oils. But the actors who couldn't afford these higher oils would continue to use ham. And they tended not to be the best actors. So if you were hamming it up and sort of overacting, (laughs) you were using that type of makeup. Lest we not forget jumping the shark. Yes, jumping the shark is a great one. And what's interesting that we see in a lot of languages is that it's increasingly more difficult to have a phrase coalesce into a popular idiom. And jumping the shark is one of the more recent ones, of course. And that comes from the show Happy Days, in which there was a famous episode in which Fonzie, literally wearing his leather jacket, jumped over a shark on on jet ski, not jet skis, but like water skis. And there was a a website that basically used use that term to represent those moments when shows have finally gone past the point of no return and were no longer enjoyable. Right. And and have lost a sense of reality. Absolutely. That you would, in a leather jacket, jump <laughs> the shark. Uh, some of the lines also have uh, fascinating backstories uh, from, from really iconic films. So let's listen to another one. Do you want a chocolate? I could eat about a million and a half of these. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So that's Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. And again, this is one where the line was not in the original book of Forrest Gump, right? Yeah, one of the first lines in the book was, uh, it's it's no box of chocolates being basically, you know, an idiot. Because Forrest Gump, the whole conceit, right, is that here's this silly guy who sort of falls his way into so much success. So there was some inspiration there, but the line wasn't in it. And the line that Eric Roth, the writer, wanted to put in was just, life is like a box of chocolates. Well, the director, Robert Zemeckis didn't understand. He's like, what, what does that mean? And so Eric Roth just off the cuff said, well, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And it's that second part of the line that really makes that line. And it was only put in because Zemeckis pushed Eric Roth. And uh, I'll say the book's author, Winston Groom. Uh, well, did, did he have any comments about that? Was he alive at the time of the filming? Yes, he was. And, and what's interesting is the book was not one of his most well-received books. Of course, the film ended up winning the Best Picture Oscar, right, right. although there are people who think it's a little overly sentimental. Groom was fine with it because it turned that book into a bestseller. Uh, I'm sure he was fine then, yes. What's interesting, though, is that other authors have not felt the same way. What we have here is a failure to communicate, which is from uh, you know a, a famous movie starring Paul Newman, of course. Um, the author of that book originally uh, was critical of that line and critical of the film. Uh, there are times a screenwriter is surprised when a line catches on with the public. Do you want to play rough? Okay. Oh, no. Say hello to my little friend. Scarface, of course, Al Pacino. The screenwriter was Oliver Stone, right? Yeah. And he said what about that? He was completely surprised. He said, I've written so many other lines that I believed would be the ones that would coalesce and really enter into the public bloodstream. And that wasn't one that he expected to occur. I make the argument, and and I think other people have made the argument, that a lot of the reason that was so successful was the -the over-the-top performance of Al Pacino. Uh The way he really sells that line was the reason it was so popular. Stone was responsible for another popular line, greed is good spoken by Michael Douglas in Wall Street. 
Yeah. And that one's an interesting line because he had a very specific inspiration for it. It was Ivan Boski, who was one of the uh, famous uh, sort of, uh, you know, junk bonders. He ended up going to jail for fraud. And he went to a graduation at UC Berkeley, a business school graduation, and basically used that line. And what was so shocking about it at the time was that there were laughs and applause from these graduates of Berkeley's business school. And so it was sort of this moment where you realized people actually do think greed is good. Uh, You include lines from television as well that have caught on. So mom always liked you best. Um, Up your nose with a rubber hose was from Welcome Back, Cotter. In, In just the last about 10 seconds, which is more influential, do you think, in our language, TV or cinema? Well, I think it's changing. And I think ultimately television may replace film. But I think right now, when you look at the history, you'll have phrases like, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn from the 1930s that survive. But with TV, it's very much time and a place. If you're a baby boomer, you're going to know Sakatumi from Rowan and Martin's Laughing. If you're a Gen Xer, you're going to know Kiss My Grits, but other people may not know it. Denver author Josh Chetwind has written totally scripted idioms, words, and quotes from Hollywood to Broadway that have changed the English language. He joined us ahead of the Oscars Sunday. Chetwind's book launch is Saturday afternoon at Barnes & Noble in Glendale. Still to come, father and son are both highly successful musicians, and they'll play together in Denver this weekend. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This music comes from two musicians with a close connection. They are father and son. Richard Stoltzman is one of the best-known clarinetists in the world. He's in his element playing classical or jazz. His son, Peter John Stoltzman, is a jazz pianist who leads the piano department at CU Denver. And he arranged this version of My Funny Valentine. Father and son are set to perform together in Denver Sunday. They join my colleague Nathan Heffel to talk about their music and to share memories of growing up in a musical family. Richard and Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. You've played many recitals together over the years. Uh, Peter, how is the connection you feel on stage to your dad different from one you'd feel with another musician you've played with for years? Oh, man. You know, it's my father. (laughs) So... It's kind of like, how is a friendship different with, you know, somebody versus a friendship with your father? I think, you know, uh, it's it's special to have this kind of relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't get that. And if they do, they, they don't get uh, a public expression of it where you're actually doing something together um, that's, that's uh, 
you know, an offering to an audience. So, yeah, I, I, I cherish this. Richard, do you think that the audience senses that connection between you and your son? I had a, a gentleman come back a couple of years ago uh, in the line of people saying hello, and he was just uh, crying. Really? Mm-hmm. Because of that connection? Yes. Yeah. You also had a musical upbringing. Uh, your dad played jazz. Uh, as uh, How much did your access to music growing up lead you to want to give Peter a similar experience? Well, my access, first of all, was like yours through the voice, mm-hmm. singing. Not that I was a singer, but that my mother and father liked to sing in the church choir. Yeah. And so uh, that's how... I got started hearing the voice in the house, and um, it, it surrounded me with something palpable in a peaceful way, uh, an expression not in so much words, but in just the way the voice could uh, issue a comfort to another person. Um, and I, I wanted that for, for everybody, but especially for Peter and Maggie. And, and Peter um, was very sensitive about the voice. I remember taking him to a kind of a fancy uh, uh, Upper East Side apartment, and, and we were supposed to have lunch, and they were getting ready to serve, and he was still playing with some toys. And I, I said, hey, Peter. So he came to, you know. <laughs> he came pretty and he quickly. Said, we <laughs> sat down. We sat down at the table to have lunch. And he, and he said, I just want to say one thing. It, don't ever use that hey word again. And I thought, <laughs> this was, right, Peter? Is this true or not? This is true. And I, I struck I me there the that the power, <laughs> the power and emotion mm. that comes with the voice. Mm. And that's what I tried to do you know, with the clarinet in terms of playing the clarinet. Yeah. Well, I want to hear a little bit, a bit of this, this work that you've done together. Uh, this is a track by Peter called Lullaby from your album Father and Son. Let's listen. story and then hearing this piece of music, the two of you playing together, um, how how important was this to you, the, the fact that you did this together? What do you remember about working on Lullaby? Either one of you. Yeah. Well, um, maybe I should speak because um, my dad used to sing the Brahms Lullaby for me when I was going to sleep. Um, <clears throat> and so this was kind of a, an homage to that. It, Lullaby and good night. May the bright stars watch over you. <laughs> and so I, I, I put that melody in retrograde, <laughs> and uh, and harmonized it, and and it came out beautifully. I mean, the the melody, you know, it's, it works beautifully. It really does. Yeah. 
Peter, your dad is known for playing classical and jazz, and few musicians can do that, you know, do both well. Uh, mm-hmm. You're less interested in classical. How early on did you gravitate toward jazz? Um, pretty early. Uh, so I started with Suzuki as a young kid, six years oldish, and um, and is that reading by sight? Does that sight reading or uh, kind of? But I but I basically learned it all by ear. I see. <laughs> and uh, and my teacher before we left Oakland, California, to move to Boston, told my parents, uh, you know, this kid's going to have to improvise. And uh-huh. sure enough, uh, it, less than a year of classical lessons in. Uh, I, I wanted to quit the instrument. And so my parents found me a great jazz teacher, Nancy Kennedy. She was wonderful um, for me for, for many years. And uh, so I started jazz, I guess, you know, I, I couldn't have been more than 10. Hmm. And that, that was pretty, that pretty much became my path. Um, yeah. I went to Berkeley, you know, and... Uh, and jazz it was. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. We played Holy Mama together when you were 10 years old on Tokyo Television. Really? Mm-hmm. In Japan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of uh, around-the-world places, uh, you had a career, Richard, that led you to many different parts of the world for concert dates. Was it a challenge to maintain a relationship with your kids while you were in an on-demand type of thing as a musician, always wanted to be somewhere? <sighs> That's a terrible question. <laughs> I, I, I'll, never, I'll never be able to get past the guilt I feel having missed pretty much everything that is significant to both my kids growing up. And um, what just is a constant marvel to me touring with Peter John is how great a father he was without really, now Peter just shut up, without the example of a good father. And and um, Part of it was I was full of myself and doing my own touring and uh, things and you know, and I thought, well, it's too late to call. Um, you know, I'm not going to call. It's expensive, long distance. You know. But but he was there for some of the things that you were doing. I, I want to uh, play a little clip from your appearance on Sesame Street from the 1980s. This is uh, Richard Stoltzman improvising on the show's theme on his clarinet. Richard Stoltzman playing. He's visiting us here today. Do you know what that instrument he's playing is called? It's called a clarinet. Shh, let's listen. That, by the way, is Telemonster introducing uh, Richard. Uh, Peter, you got to take along during that (laughs) visit to Sesame Street. What do you remember about that? Um, I remember seeing Big Bird uh, without the, without the top on <laughs> and just having the ultimate dissolution moment of like, oh. no, it's a man inside, inside a costume. So, yeah, but uh, that was fun. Uh, you know, uh, my dad's uh, overstating the, the amount of him being away. Yeah, it's real, um, all that. Uh, but also he was around a lot. And when he was around, he, um, he was in, in very engaged and a wonderful father for me. We have a long history of bonding things, including, you know, going to baseball games together and, and playing and doing 
uh, you know, music together and lots of, lots of great things. One of the things I love about playing with Peter John is that he breathes with me without any indication, as you usually do in chamber music, of giving signs as if he just breathes with me. And I realize it's because he would, in, instead of me putting him to sleep, he put on my CDs and fall asleep. And so... <laughs> that's that's that connection again. Yeah. I want to go down this. This is music by George Gershwin, recorded yesterday during a session in the CPR Performance Studio with two generations of Stoltzmans, Richard on clarinet and Peter on piano. Clarinetist Richard Stoltzman and his son, pianist Peter John Stoltzman, play a recital together at 2 p.m. Sunday at the First Unitarian Society of Denver. The program includes American music by composers like George Gershwin, Aaron Copland, and Duke Ellington. And you can hear more from the Stoltzmans in the CPR Performance Studio, 7 Friday night on Colorado Spotlight from CPR Classical. With Nathan Heffel, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.